0: Good morning, everybody. Um, Welcome to this worship service, a special welcome to any visitors who are worshipping with us this morning and also anyone joining us remotely via the live stream. May we all be comforted and encouraged by the preaching of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and may God be praised and glorified by our worship. There's a few announcements from the consistory this morning. Um, Consistory will meet as elders and deacons from 7.30pm tomorrow evening in the consistory room. And the mission board will be in attendance for the first part of that meeting. Reverend Tehart will also preach in our church this afternoon and next Sunday afternoon with an opportunity to meet and greet Reverend and Mrs Tehart after the service. This week, Wards 1, 3 and 5 are invited to remain behind this afternoon um, to meet and greet with him. And next week, Wards 2, 4 and 6 will have the same opportunity, the Lord willing. Consistory will meet with Reverend Tahart this coming Thursday evening in the Consistory room with the meeting commencing at 7.30pm. And this morning's worship service will be led by Reverend Archibald. And before we commence the worship service, let us praise the name of our Lord by singing hymn 77 verses 1, 2 and 3.
1: acknowledge our dependence upon the Lord with the words of Psalm 124 verse 8. We acknowledge that our help is in the name of the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. And we receive also his greeting with these words, Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Praise the Lord who reigns forever We sing our praises with Psalm 146, stanzas 1 to 3. Law this morning, the summary of it from Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy 5, Ten Commandments. And we begin reading from verse 6. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I the Lord your God am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labour and do all your work, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, and you shall not steal and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbour and you shall not covet your neighbour's wife and you shall not desire your neighbour's house, his field or his male servant or his female servant his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbours in response to that reading of God's law we sing from Psalm 31 stanzas 1 to 3 Psalm. 31, stanzas 1 to 3. Heavenly Father. As we consider a little later uh, part of your word that is counted as wisdom literature, we are mindful of the fact that you are the God of infinite wisdom and we praise you as such. Father, you know everything that there is to know about this universe, for you created it. You know all about man as well. There is nothing at all that is secret to you you know our innermost thoughts and intentions and you know all of our sins of thought word and deed as well as the sins of negligence but father we thank you that you sent your son as the word made flesh also as our wisdom the wisdom of God made flesh we thank you that you have set your wisdom down also in written word in the scripture so that those things that you wish us to know might be before us in that written form and that we have have that confidence and can that that it is an inerrant word and we can also remember the things that are written because they are before us in that way, in a way that you have preserved and we thank you too that you have sent your spirit to guide us into all the truth into the wisdom that you have designed for us. Father we thank you that we see this wisdom in your law. How good are your precepts and your statutes and your judgments. We thank you that you have enabled us to accept that following them is part of the way of wisdom. That it is good for us to live according to your law. Though there are so many in our society who dispute that but Father keep us from listening to them in that regard. We thank you also that we see your wisdom in the sending of your son to save those whom you have chosen. Father the world sees this also as foolishness but for us this is a great and wonderful truth as it is in reality you've enabled us to see it as such. And yet Father we must confess that for all of that For all of the fact that we confess these truths, we often, so often fail to act with wisdom, the wisdom that you have given to us. We are very foolish at times. And so, Father, we again this morning confess our sins before you. Your law, the reading of your law, has reminded us uh, us again of those sins. And we ask forgiveness for them through the Lord Jesus Christ whom you, in your infinite wisdom, sent to redeem us. And, Father, we ask that you will now help us to learn to walk more and more in your way, in wisdom's ways, that this would progress throughout our lives, that we would grow in that faithfulness and in maturity. To that end, Father, we pray that you will give us understanding of your word as we hear it read and preached, A commitment to that same word to apply it with your help in our lives? Will you cause it to instruct us, to challenge us, to correct us, to encourage us and to comfort us? Father if there are areas in our lives where we are delaying a proper response to your word in any area at all we ask that you would break down our stubborn resistance and move us to submit more and more to your rule and indeed to do so not with reluctance but with grateful hearts and with a delight in following your ways. Father would you also make us willing to share whatever wisdom you have taught us that we may do so to the building up of those who are yours Uh, may it be that in that way we would be uh, involved and participate in the life of our congregation and uh, we pray that we would not simply be those who come uh, each Sunday simply to benefit ourselves or for whatever other reason but those who realize that you fill us with your word and with your good gifts so that we might also be used by you to build up the body of Christ and would you help us to have a strong commitment to that truth so that we have a desire to participate as fully as we can in the life of the church rather than as minimally as we can get away with. Help us to be um, eager to attend Bible study groups and such things so that we would um, have that opportunity to uh, share with others the good things that you've given us and not be miserly and try to keep those things to ourselves but To have sufficient love for our brethren, that we want to help build them up as well and to be built up by them. Will you give us the humility for that as well, Father, to, uh, to listen to others and to learn from them and to be built up and encouraged by them too. And, Father, we pray that as part of that desire and delight that we have in sharing the wisdom that you have taught us, that we would also be eager to be a witness to those things, to those who do not know you, And will you make us alert to such opportunities in the week ahead That uh, we might be ready always to give a good account of the truth that you have taught to us Father will you now hear and accept our prayers as we offer them to you In this uh, part of our service to you in our worship service That uh, we do so not in our own strength or merits but that we do so In the name and the strength and the merits of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray these things. Amen. Two scripture readings at this point. First of all, from James chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. James 4, verses 13 to 17. as we will be, uh, Lord willing, working through the book of Ecclesiastes over the next couple of months in the morning services. Uh, That is part of the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. And we may regard the book of James as a kind of New Testament wisdom literature. James 4 from verse 13 to 17. Come now, you who say, As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. And then would you turn also, please, uh, to Matthew 16, another reading by way of background to our text. Matthew 16. Verses 24 to 27. Then Jesus told his disciples If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life we will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake. truth and equity delight us so it should be and uh, so we ought to be pleased and privileged to continue to hear God's word read and preached delighting in his truth and our reading and text is from Ecclesiastes chapter 1 the first 11 verses Ecclesiastes 1 verses 1 to 11 The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again all things are full of weariness, a man cannot utter it, the eye is not satisfied with seeing nor the ear filled with hearing, what has been is what will be and what has been done is what will be done and there is nothing new under the sun, is there a thing of which it is said see this is new, it has been already in the ages before us there is no remembrance of former things nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after Covenant people of God there is a view of life that says that everything just goes round and round in endless cycles. Birth, death, rebirth, spring, summer, autumn, winter, spring, summer, autumn, winter. The great wheel as some refer to it. Some talk of reincarnation as part of that cycle. And this is a common view throughout history in many pagan religions where those cycles are supposedly maintained by the gods. Though these days I suppose there are many who think that there are no gods, there is no god, but nevertheless there is this cycle, things just going round and round. The view of this cycle of all things maintained by the gods That was a a view that was held, for example, by the Canaanites in that time in Israel's history. So how come the writer of Ecclesiastes seems to be agreeing with this cyclical view? In this part of Ecclesiastes, we find no mention of God, just the cycles of this world. Well, we look at this text to find out why the writer gives that impression. And we're going to look at that under three points this morning. First of all, the circle of nature. Secondly, the circle of man. And thirdly, the circle of life. In the first place then, our attention is directed here in this passage to the forces of nature. And the first of those that is mentioned is the sun. Think of the sun. Something that may be very much on our minds at this time of the year in Perth with uh, the summer temperatures and uh, perhaps also very much on people's minds these days with all of the emphasis on climate change and global warming and such things. And all the uh, dire predictions connected with that. Certainly the sun is a very powerful source of energy, of heat and light. Uh, Something that is so important for life and growth in this world and it is indeed a massive thing this star, and a long lived thing around for so long from the fourth day of creation to the present time and however much time there is remaining in this world. Yet the writer of Ecclesiastes tells us that even this great body, with all of its energy, and power, and size, and longevity, even this is trapped within a certain cycle. The sun rises, and the sun goes down, verse 5. This is, by the way, not a scientific explanation of things, as we might call it today. It is written from the perspective of how things look to to us, to those who are on earth. And uh, before we get too carried away with criticising the ancients for superstitious views, let us not forget that we speak in the same way today. I was up before the dawn. Uh, Dawn breaks, night falls... The sun is high in the sky at midday and such language. This is a very common descriptive language and you find it in the Bible too and it is not being put forward as some kind of scientific explanation. But the point that is made in this poetic description is that from this cyclical perspective, the sun leads a very monotonous existence, trapped as I said within this cycle. It rises, it sets, it does the same thing tomorrow and it will do the same thing if the world continues the day after and so on. And there is in it no apparent progress, there is no apparent goal, there is no reward for the sun for all that it does and no purpose if, if you leave God out of the picture. A similar point is made then regarding the wind, verse 6. The wind also is very powerful. It uproots trees, it drives mighty waves onto the shore, it sinks ships. But this powerful force too, it blows to the south, it blows to the north. It goes around and around in a big circle and then back again to the beginning and starts the cycle all over again and again and again trapped within the cycle, as it goes around on its circuit. No progress, ultimately no goal, no purpose, no reward for its labours, if you leave God out of the picture. The water cycle dealt with the same way in verse 7. The rivers flow into the sea, but the sea is never filled, while the rivers themselves, generally speaking, don't run out of water. As we know today, some of the water evaporates, it falls as rain, it fills the rivers, the rivers flow to the sea, more evaporation, maintaining that cycle. But the writer is pointing out that from a certain perspective, this cyclical perspective, this is another monotonous circle with no no apparent goal, no progress, no purpose and no reward. Just another endless cycle, if you leave God out of the picture. But is that what the writer really wants us to think, to adopt this cyclical view? Does he want us to end with this idea of a meaningless world that is nothing but an endless circle like that, with no purpose and goal? Well, of course, as we would expect with God's word, that is not his purpose the writer is showing us where non-believing thought leaves the person who holds it, the sinner. The person who looks at the God established cycles of nature and he sees no ultimate meaning in them. There is no ultimate purpose in them as far as he is concerned, no goal or progress. They are just aspects of a, the random effects of evolution in an empty, godless universe. And so it's really going nowhere, and it has no ultimate meaning. This non-Christian view is, of course, contrary to the whole of God's word. And you can see this in many ways throughout Scripture. Contrast, for example, this rather depressing, this picture of a, a, a dry, and empty and hopeless cyclical view. Contrast that, for example, with the way we, uh, we get it in Psalm 19, this description of the sun there, but it is a description of the sun serving God's purposes. And it's a very different picture. The sun in Psalm 19 is described as if it were like a, a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. Psalm 19, verses 5 and 6 or like a strong man running his course in other words full of purpose and with a goal in mind and with progress the purpose as that psalm tells us Psalm 19 verse 1 the purpose of the son being to tell forth God's glory and we could add also though it's not specifically mentioned in that psalm to demonstrate God's kindness in that he has set up this world so that even people who hate him receive rain and sunshine and such things a similar point is made in Jeremiah 51 verse 15 forward where the clouds ascend, lightning splits the sky the rain falls and the winds blow at God's command but Jeremiah says sinful man is stupid he attributes these things to false gods of his own making or perhaps he these days in the Western world he attributes them to no one and nothing they just happen and he does not see the purpose of God in these things to show God's attributes and to bring him glory nor does he see the goal of these things the ultimate goal Romans 8 for example Uh, addresses that so well and wonderfully. Romans 8 verse 18 forward explains how the creation was subjected to futility because of man's sin. It came under a curse, but nevertheless, it is going somewhere. It is waiting for redemption. And in fact, the language in in Romans 8 is fantastic. It describes uh, the, the literal words, describe creation as if it were someone standing in a crowd waiting for a parade to come around the corner in a city, for example. And it describes creation as being like that person in the crowd, stretching their neck to look above the rest of the crowd, waiting to see the first part of that procession come around the corner. And uh, that's a great picture, isn't it, that creation, though it doesn't have a, a mind the way that we do, creation is pictured as yearning and straining forward, stretching its neck, waiting for the coming of Christ, and for its redemption, the redemption of this whole world. Just as creation fell under a curse because its manager under God, man, Adam, fell under a curse, So it will be redeemed when elect sinners are glorified. That is when the new man, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, returns. And you see, this is the answer to this cyclical view of nature and all views like it. A view of a world that progresses between creation and redemption on its way to glory according to God's purpose in Christ. Yes, there are cycles in nature, and we see that all the time, the water cycle and so forth. We agree with that. But all of it is moving to a final goal. Nature was subjected to futility, but futility will not have the final say in it. And it's that biblical view that the writer of Ecclesiastes is pointing us to by showing us the absolute and the utter bankruptcy of this cyclical view and indeed of all views that leave God out of the picture. Well, someone might say that's all very well. Of course the sun and the wind and the water don't have a purpose or a goal. They're mindless. But man, man with his ever evolving brain, he's different. He has learned how to control his environment. And if there's a problem in the world, like temperature rises or some such, it must be of man's making, not God's uh, purposes. And if there's a solution to it, then the solution also lies in man's hands. Man can control his environment. If the world needs saving, he doesn't need God to do that, he can do it himself. All we need to do is just join hands and we can do anything we set our minds to. And we don't need God for that and we don't need God to give us meaning in life. We make our own meaning, we set our own goals. That's what we look at and how the writer of Ecclesiastes addresses that kind of thinking in our second point, the circle of man. And We get our answer to this in verses three and four of the text. Uh, note that after posing the problem of the meaning of life in verse 2, the preacher goes first to the problem of the meaning of man's existence before he deals with the cycles of nature. I've done it the other way around, but he does that, putting man first and then nature. At any rate, man, both individually and also collectively in his generations, he comes onto the scene, and then he disappears quickly. A person is born, he grows up, and after a few decades, or for some sadly less, he dies. If he has had children, the same thing happens to them. It happens to whole cultures, it happens to entire nations, and it happens to generations. They come and they go in this cycle, apparently trapped in another one of those endless cycles. The work of men's hands get the same treatment. Men do uh, many things, of course, to try and carve out some meaning for their lives. Uh, They write books or they write poetry or they paint beautiful pictures on canvas or they build a beautiful home and garden or they build up a successful business or whatever else it is and then they feel that they have made their mark in this world and they've left their mark for posterity. But does this really give man an advantage, a gain or profit, verse 3, over nature? Not at all. For one thing, much of the work that man does is toilsome, also in verse 3. And the word toil implies the sweat of hard labour and exhaustion. Due to the curse on nature that came because of man's fall into sin, by the sweat of your face you will eat bread, Genesis 3.19. Not all work is unpleasant, but the curse is always there, always affecting us in our work and our labours. And this is a subject that comes up quite frequently in the book of Ecclesiastes. There's another effect of sin, and that is that man is... Simple man is covetous. he's greedy. He is envious. He wants more, and he's never satisfied for long. Any advantage that a man might seem to have in reaching his own goals soon evaporate it's the, it soon evaporates in this desire for more, driven by lack of contentment for what he has. Uh, If you have a lack of contentment then there's no sense of profit, advantage or gain or what you have in that respect quickly vanishes and you feel you have to take more steps forward. Then of course, as the saying goes, you can't take it with you. Every achievement that a man makes has to be left behind when he dies. Either it goes to another person Who then goes through the same process, or it crumbles to dust, as in any case it will eventually. For both man himself and the works of his hands are also subject to this cycle of dust to dust. And when a man is long gone, after he has died, there is generally not going to be any remembrance of him or his achievements. Verse 11. Maybe your uh, children remember you and your grandchildren, possibly even your great-grandchildren. If you've done something uh, remarkable compared to other people, your name might go down in some books. But sooner or later, for the vast majority of us, uh, we're forgotten. In the future, we will be forgotten. Where then is the meaning or advantage for man over against the rest of creation? If you leave God out of the picture... This uh, cyclical view of man also leads to a cyclical view of human history. People today like to think that their ideas and their philosophies are new, groundbreaking discoveries. Many think of man as evolving upwards, becoming smarter and more noble, becoming better and better. Well, I don't think we need to look very far to question that, especially that idea of man's moral evolution. Moral evolution, like the estimated, though it's probably more, 100,000 abortions a year in this country. Moral evolution? Well, I seem to remember hearing that in ancient Sparta they did something like that, leaving their newborns, exposing them out in the open to see whether they would live or die so that the weak would be culled. Or perhaps moral evolution, perhaps you can see it by watching stuff on Netflix or uh, similar companies, or not. Verse 9 concludes that there's really nothing new under the sun. History repeats itself. And the reason history repeats itself in this way is that sinful man simply does not learn from his mistakes. He does not want to learn. And so it has often been said, the only thing we learn from history is that we learn nothing from history. This expression, nothing new under the sun, is an important one, a very important one in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's found 29 times in this book. And it refers to this way of looking at things, things in this life, apart from the Lord. That includes the cyclical view as it's discussed here, but any non-Christian view which looks at things apart from the Lord, as if they simply exist, things simply exist under the sun, with no higher or heavenly or supernatural reality above that. The preacher is telling us, that man gains no advantage when he looks at life on, in that way. And in fact, it is exactly the opposite. He loses all profit. He loses that which is good by looking at life in this way. He reduces himself to the p- point where even if he doesn't admit it, all is vanity. Far from being advantage, it's vanity. Verse 2. Indeed, it is Vanity of vanities, the doubling up of the word, the repetition of it in our text implies that what we are talking about here is extreme vanity, the utmost in vanity. Vanity means futility. The word means utter, empty, meaninglessness. As lacking in substance as a vapor or mist. Isn't that what James says of the arrogant man who leaves God out of his planning? We read that earlier. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. That's the vanity of the life that is lived without the Lord. And this expression, vanity, vanity of vanities, it's mentioned around 38 times in this book. And we could say it is the main theme of the book of Ecclesiastes the vanity of life lived without God but then we contrast that with the biblical view of man man is created by God in his image he has given a purpose from the very start to serve and glorify not merely to serve and glorify but even to enjoy God that's his purpose as he manages creation in God's name He has a goal and ultimately that goal is to attain to the life of glory where we can serve the Lord without sin getting in the way of it. But of course we cannot act, we cannot even accept these truths without the redeeming work of Christ along with the regenerating work of his spirit. But in Christ everything changes, everything changes for man and for our view of man our work takes on a significance that it could never have otherwise the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 58 that your work is not in vain it's not empty and meaningless if it honors Christ all of our works will be tested on the last day and burned as with fire and everything that is not built on the foundation of Christ will be burned away But the things that are built on the foundation of Christ, those things will remain as a testimony to the work of Jesus Christ, to his glory. In Christ, there is also something new, not the same old, same old of cycles just going around. Revelation 21 verse 5 says that Christ ultimately makes all things new. In Christ, there is profit, gain, advantage. The surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Philippians 3, verse 8. In Christ, man's history has a direction. It's going somewhere. The history of this world is moving to God's planned future for this world, not just repeating itself. You see, in Christ, everything becomes significant rather than everything becoming meaningless. Even the cycle of birth and death leads somewhere greater, it leads for us to glory. The contrast between the under the sun view of life and the Christian view simply could not be greater. Well, we've looked at the circle of nature and the circle of man. Now I want to bring these two together in our third and final point, the circle of life. For when you put those two groups together, you cover all of life. The expression, actually the expression under the sun does itself imply all of life, everything that goes on in this world. Note the, uh, the all of verse one, all is vanity. The all of verse three, all of man's toil, the all of verse eight, all things full of weariness. And then the nothing of verse nine, nothing new under the sun. This text is about your world and life view. Actually, it's about two opposing world and life views. And it is saying that this is an all or a nothing matter. And there's absolutely nothing in between. It's either everything in Christ or nothing without him, ultimately speaking. So the preacher is pointing out that everything is pointless, meaningless, if God is left out of the picture. And through the rest of this book, as we, Lord willing, will work through that, We'll start to narrow down on the various attempts that man, sinful man makes to try and get away from that problem in his own strength. The ways he tries to carve out that meaning for himself. And we'll look at those more closely. They will be put to the test. And every single one of them will be found wanting. And then this book will conclude in chapter 12 verse 8 repeating the thesis of this first overview chapter it will conclude all is vanity you know this is one of the things that makes it very hard for me to imagine turning away from the Lord the thought that to do so would reduce us to an utter meaninglessness of life without God where at the end of the day everything Everything that we would attempt would be just pointless. It's a horrible thought. It has been said that man evolved by random processes in a world of blind fate would be nothing more than atoms falling through space. That's it. That's your meaning? Atoms falling through space. And it doesn't matter whether you're a human being or whether you're a rock or whether you're a tree or whatever else, it's all the same. You're just atoms falling through space if you leave God out of the picture. It's even difficult to speak of laws of science and of logic on the basis of such a view, on the basis of such complete randomness, where even the so-called laws of science... Even they don't have any ultimate meaning either in this random, pointless, godless universe, if that is your view. No goal, no direction, no progress. And no morals. No right or wrong on such a view. If you're atoms falling through space, where's where's the morality of atoms falling through space? If you're a rock and you fall off a cliff, as somebody has said, The rock falls off a cliff, and it hits someone in the head and kills them. The rock hasn't acted in an immoral way. It's not a right or wrong, it's just atoms falling through space, hitting more atoms falling through space. So there's no right or wrong in it. And then at the end of it all, this futile, amoral life, just the black void. Well, what a sad and empty view, and what a sad and empty life governed by such a view. What would be the point in anything? And throughout the history of philosophy, there have been those who have reached that conclusion. There is no point in anything, anything we think, say or do, individually or collectively. And some of those became so depressed by that fact that they actually gathered together in small groups to sing Christian hymns, which they didn't believe, but they thought, at least we can play pretend for a little while and sing something encouraging. And others also sadly ended their lives in the most dark and abject despair. Most people today, at least in the Western world, just go through the motions of existing day by day Trying to have what fun they can on the way. To have real meaning in life, in all of its aspects, you need to know the living God. You have to go beyond the sun, to the one who created the sun, to the one who is greater than the sun. The God who created the sun and who governs this world and who also redeems it. And as a sinner, you can only do that, as I mentioned, through the Lord Jesus Christ. For that reason, the writer of Ecclesiastes does not make his final, all is vanity, in chapter 12, quite the last, the last word. He puts forward the alternative, the way of meaningfulness and wisdom. But we'll come to that in a later sermon in this series, Lord willing. When you know God through Christ, this is the point that we're being led to. Nothing is empty. Your whole life, your history, your work, your study, whether you study science or the arts or technology, your worship, your relationships, your future, everything is completely full of purpose and meaning and direction. Every single thought, every single word, every deed built on the foundation of Christ will be valued for his sake, in him you are going somewhere. You are headed toward him, that's where you're going. You are headed toward him to spend eternity in his presence. And what a contrast that is with a life that is trapped in the circle just spinning round and round. Those are the alternatives. There is emptiness and bankruptcy of life trapped in the circle, spinning round and round, without making any progress, or the life that is completely full of life, a life of spiritual richness and abundance, with a great goal set before us, a finish line and a victor's crown, and then after that, an eternity of joy and peace and perfect meaningfulness. Amen. In response to the sermon, we sing Psalm 57, stanzas 1, 4, and 5, concerning our security in the God who charts the direction of our lives and whose glory fills the earth and gives meaning to all of life. 57, stanzas 1, 4, and 5, and we will stand to sing. Set our feet in that direction. We thank you for changing our hearts so that we could acknowledge you as our God and be pleased to be guided by you. And Father, we thank you also for um, the uh, fact that uh, you have given us a new nature even though we have uh, so much trouble with our old nature yet we thank you that you restrain that and cause our new nature to be who we are in our heart of hearts. Father, when we consider how many there are in this world who do not acknowledge their creator and provider, who do not see the need of redemption or see Christ as the only one who can deliver them, many worshipping idol gods, others idolising themselves, idolising man, leaving themselves without hope and without true meaning in life, Unable to make sense of this world around them, or to make sense of their own lives. And yet, Father, you have chosen us to know you, though we deserve it no more than they. Will you help us now to tell those who are living in this darkness of the true meaning and purpose and goal of life. At times, Father, we confess that things happen to us and around us that do not seem to us to make much sense. We cannot always see the reasons behind the things that you ordain, behind your providence. And especially when such things bring grief and loss and tragedy to us or to others. Father, we pray for those who are suffering and especially from chronic illness, those who struggle with grief or depression or anxiety. We pray that they might accept that all you have ordained is First, for your glory, but second, for ultimate good for those who love you. And Father, in that connection, we pray for Brother Scoot in the um, intensive care unit. And uh, we pray that despite his frailty, that you might be pleased to grant recovery to him. That you might be pleased to use the ministrations of the uh, the medical fraternity to uh, bring that about according to your will. Father, we pray also this morning for the work of the Canadian Reformed Theological Seminary. We pray that it would remain faithful and effective in its teaching and preparing of men for the ministry of word and sacrament. Will you continue to raise up men to receive that training? And Father, would you grant discernment to the faculty to be able to advise regarding uh, the suitability of those who graduate and in this way, would you help them to serve the good of the churches here in Canada and elsewhere? Father, we pray for this congregation and also for Reverend Hart, as he uh, prayerfully considers the call that he has to Southern River. And uh, we also uh, pray that the meeting with the congregation and with the consistory, would uh, that you would use that as part of this process of guiding him to Uh, discern uh, what you would have him do. Father we uh, pray for the the, uh, general work of the consistory as they meet uh, this week for that purpose as well and we pray that you would give them wisdom and grace in the making of decisions and in their deliberations. Father we thank you again that we can bring such matters before you in prayer. We thank you that we can bring both the The big things of life, but also the smaller matters that concern us, such as the health of our members, things that are more local uh, as well, that we can bring such things before you, knowing that you are the God who hears and answers prayers. You answer our prayers for Christ's sake when we pray in his name, as we do now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The uh, collection today is for the Canadian Reformed Theological Seminary this morning and after the collection would you please stand to sing the final hymn, hymn 85, stanzas 1 and 3. God's blessing upon his people the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way the Lord be with you all amen.